Okay, I'm really, really blessed to um, be able to introduce to you this morning Tommy Fretwell. Tommy is um, working through his PhD. He's passionate about theology and apologetics and is a, a pastor, an assistant pastor at Calvary Chapel Hastings. I'm going to pray for Tommy. Let's give Tommy a round of applause and get him up on stage. Hey, Tommy, we've got your lectern. We had a conversation earlier, podium, lectern, pulpit. Yeah, uh, so Tommy, it's just a real blessing for you to be with us today, and thank you for being with us and sharing with us. Great to be here. Father God, we pray for Tommy this morning, Lord. We pray that you're with him, Lord. We pray a Holy Spirit anointing on him as he brings your word to us this morning, Lord. We pray you open all our hearts, Lord, to receive from you this morning, Lord. Help us to hear the word and be doers of the word, Lord. And Lord, we just pray, Lord, that you continue to create in us that new heart, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Over to you, Tommy. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. I hope everyone's enjoying the festival so far. I know the sleep catches up with you, doesn't it, by Thursday. But we have the Holy Spirit, and we have caffeine, let's not lie. We are going to continue our journey through the book of Ephesians this morning. We are in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 to 14. Let's just, let me just pray quickly again before we get into the word of God. Father, I thank you so much for your word. I pray now that you would use just the words of my lips to expound the truths and to give glory to Jesus Christ, Father. In Jesus' name and for his sake, we pray. So it's a real privilege to share the word of God with you this morning. It's a privilege to share the Word of God uh, anywhere that we go, but we are going to be in Ephesians 5 this morning. So what I want to do with you all is we're going to read verses 1 to 14, and then we'll go back over, we'll make some comments, we're going to camp down on the first couple of verses, and then we'll, we'll work our way through it. So let's read verses 5, 1 to 14 together. The Apostle Paul writes this, Therefore, be imitators of God. As beloved children, and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. But immortality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you, as is proper among the saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not be partakers with them, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which we are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light, for everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason it says, Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine upon you. So this is Paul's message now. Now in the first, uh, I think it was Sunday morning 
We were given a threefold outline for the book of Ephesians, and it was the wealth of the believer, the walk of the believer, and then the warfare. So we are firmly in the passage dealing with the walk of the believer. Um, we had this, the guys yesterday started this theme, and we're going to pick it up now. So notice in verse 1, he says, therefore, and this links it to the context of yesterday's message and the, the previous verses in chapter 4, which was looking at Christ's example, how he behaved with one another, and using Christ as the example. So it says, therefore, that you could say, in light of what Christ has already done, the way he's shown us to walk, and now Paul goes on to explain a number of things. The first thing he says is, be imitators of God. Be imitators of God. Now this, in these few words, we have one of the most vital commands for the church. In the first century Jewish culture, of which Paul was a part of, and when this book was written, imitation was considered to be the very essence of discipleship. Now, we don't often think like this. Discipleship, and maybe in a Christian context, we think more of just simply following or maybe going through a discipleship course or learning the Bible in an academic way, but it was more than that. In the time of Jesus, it was imitation. This is how I want us to think of discipleship. The disciple, your students, your learners, as they were called, they would seek to imitate not only the teaching of their particular rabbi, but also how that rabbi applied the word of God and also how he lived. Obviously, all the famous rabbis at this time had their little groups of disciples. Jesus was no different. He had the 12, and then obviously he had thousands more who were following him at that time, and today he has many millions more. It's not just about subscribing to the same teaching as the teacher. It was actually about becoming like the teacher in every way. And we find this theme in the New Testament, Luke chapter 6, verse 40, we read these words. A pupil is not above his teacher, but everyone, after he has been fully trained, will be like his teacher. The words of Jesus there. What he's saying is, when you, when you engage in discipleship, you will end up becoming like the person who is discipling you. And obviously, as Christians, we have Jesus Christ, don't we? So as we, as we are being disciples, if we're walking after Jesus Christ, we should be imitating him. This is the essence of discipleship, the art of imitation. And this has roots going back into the Old Testament. I heard this verse quoted in one of the messages yesterday. The book of Leviticus, we find this phrase, Be ye holy, for I am holy. Now, many of us don't spend huge amounts of time in Leviticus, but if you do, you'll learn that little phrase is eight times in the book of Leviticus. Be ye holy, for I am holy. Now, obviously, we get our holiness from Christ, don't we? Positionally. But there's also an element of this that's talking practically about how we walk. And this is how we see it applied in the New Testament. In the, the book of 1 Peter 15, chapter, uh, book of 1 Peter, it says this, But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So he quotes from the book of Leviticus, and he's using this as a model for our, for our conduct here. Now, when you read the New Testament, I'm highlighting this because I want you to start thinking in terms of imitation as a model of discipleship. And hopefully now that I've drawn it out to you, when you read the New Testament, look how many times you see this theme of imitation come up, particularly from the pen of the Apostle Paul. Let me read to you a couple of verses from elsewhere in Paul's writings. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 15 to 16. He says, For in Christ Jesus I became your father through the gospel, Therefore, I exhort you, be imitators of me. 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 5 and 6. 
Paul again writes, You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 11 verse 1, this famous verse, Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. And obviously we know in the Christian context that we're not really to imitate men. We have many people who lead us in the Lord and we imitate them only as they imitate Christ. And this is the model that Paul is holding up for us here. There are many more verses I could give you, but the theme of imitation is pivotal to understanding discipleship. And it's a beautiful picture we have here of the Christian life. You see, our aim is to ultimately be conformed into the image of Christ. This is a work that will be happening now and we'll see its fruition when we see the Lord face to face. So this is Paul's first thing. In light of the example of conduct that Christ has given us, he wants us now to imitate that example by following Jesus Christ, by imitating the Lord. Be imitators of God. And then he goes on and he says, as beloved children. And again, just three words, but these three words hold so much truth for us. And we looked at this in Ephesians chapter 1. It shows the importance of our relationship as we engage in imitation. It's talking about a truth that Paul uh, expounds on elsewhere in his epistles, and this is what we call the doctrine of adoption. This is that wonderful truth that we become children of God when we become Christians. It's one of the most cherished and comforting truths in the whole of the Christian faith, and unique to Christianity. You won't find many world religions that have a wonderful uh, doctrine of adoption. In Christ, God adopts us as his children. And this is important because children imitate their parents. We know this, don't we? If you come to my house at dinner time, if there's sandwiches or pizza, I'm one of these funny people, I will not eat my crusts. Now there's a whole philosophy of eating that goes behind it. It's very complex, it's serious, but I won't share it with you now. However, my children, my two boys, the older one at least anyway, he also has taken to leaving his crusts. Now, he's too young to have a, a philosophy of eating worked out to the degree that I do. So when, when my wife asks him, eat your crusts, he says, well, Dad doesn't do it. And I, have no, I can't argue with that. It's true. I don't do it, and he's copying me. He's imitating me. This is what happens. This is why the father-son relationship or the family relationship that we see is held up in the Bible in this way. It's a very similar sort of concept that I'm uh, looking at here. Let me give you a historical example of this. I love to use historical examples uh, when I'm giving messages. Let's take you back to the time of London when uh, Charles Dickens and C.H. Spurgeon were walking the streets of London, 1854. Parliament dubbed this period of history the Great Stink. And this was because at this time in London, Victorian London, the River Thames had become such a cesspit of rotting sewage that you could smell it throughout the whole of the city. The wealthy people used to spray uh, perfume onto their curtains when they opened the windows to try and hide the smell, and the parliament realized that something had to be done about this. Disease was rife. Infant mortality was so high that a third of children would die before the age of five. Children had no rights. Most of them were orphaned and destitute, begging on the streets. Or they'd be working 15 hours in the factories, they'd be going up the chimneys and, and dying from all the diseases associated with that. If you read the records of social reforms in Victorian London, you will see that the cause of these children was championed by nonconformist evangelicals at the time. Andrew Reid, known as the Orphan's Friend, he started the London Orphan Society. Lord Shaftesbury, the Earl of, uh, Earl of Shaftesbury, he dedicated his life to making laws to protect children. 
Thomas Bernardo, Bernardo's orphanages, you've probably heard of them. Elizabeth Fry, reformed prisons. On and on, I could give you this list. The question is, why? The issue is because they were imitating God, whose heart is to be a father to the orphans and the destitute. You see, they knew because they had been adopted as children when they became Christians that they were now to imitate God in this way. And you see this happening throughout church history. I could give you many, many examples. But how important is it that we have a correct view of our standing with God as beloved children, like the Apostle Paul writes here? Now, many of us, I believe, we have trouble with this. We can read it, we can understand it, maybe academically, but do we really actually walk with that understanding? You see, once we've been set free, you could say we've been justified in the courtroom, we then have access into the living room. And this is where family business happens. But it's so easy to forget that part. And a lot of us try and relate to God like we're still in the courtroom, keeping a record of sins, of rights and wrongs, trying to earn favor with God by whether we've been good or bad. And all these concepts fail to understand what Paul is trying to to, uh, get over here. We imitate God as beloved children. Now, if you want a very quick way, I heard it put like this one, to know which room you are in. Which one of these two statements do you resonate with? Do you think, oh no, I've messed up, my dad's going to kill me? Or do you think, oh no, I've messed up, I better call my dad? And I just found that was a really nice way to think about this concept here. You see, it's amazing, we get to relate to God as his children. We need to understand this for our own lives, it'll affect how you practically live your Christian life, but also it'll affect the beauty of your gospel presentation to people. And this is one of the things that the church is charged to do, present the gospel. And I believe this is often missed. What's that most famous verse that Jesus says, John 14, 6? I'm sure many of you have it memorized. I am the way, the truth, and the life. We need to ask, the way to what? It's a natural question that that people will ask when you just quote a verse like that, particularly unchurched people. The way to what? Now, usually when this verse is talked about, it's talking in a gospel message usually, and it's talking about the, the way to salvation, And of course, that is absolutely correct. Don't misunderstand me. But notice that's not the way Jesus describes it. He doesn't say the way to salvation. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He chooses to describe it as the way to the Father. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. You see, when we say the way to salvation, in in our culture today, that can be lost as a sort of textbook theological term that doesn't really have much meaning for many people. But when you say the way to the Father, that resonates with people in this world. We have a loving, almighty Father in heaven. This is an important message for the church. We must understand this. Paul says, be imitators of God as beloved children. And then in verse 2, he says, walk in love. Walk in love. Again, just three words, but hugely rich with depth and meaning. This is the manifestation of discipleship in our lives, if we are truly imitating God. Now, this is a good time to pause and talk about love for a moment. What is love? It's a confusing issue in the culture today. Is it a feeling? Is it an action? Now, it's very important we do not take our ideas of love from the culture. You see, love is not a sentimental, emotional response. It's not merely an affirmation of people's desires and opinions. And as Christians, we need to be very clear in defending the biblical definition of love, as surely when Paul says walk in love, he is talking about the biblical definition of love and nothing else. Where do we find this? I believe we find this in 1 John 5, verse 3. 
It says this, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. This is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. That is not a definition we hear, particularly in our culture, when conversations around love are happening. Elsewhere, the Apostle Paul, the same writer of this epistle, he puts it like this in Titus 2.10. It's one of my favorite verses. He says, showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. Every respect. He's saying we wear them. We adorn our bodies with the teaching of Jesus. And that word adorn there, it's, it's the Greek word cosmeo. It's where we get our word cosmetics from. And many of you will know what, you know, we understand this. It gives a great picture. We put cosmetics on. I don't personally, but people put cosmetics on. Maybe a little bit sometimes. To make ourselves, you know, to make yourself more beautiful, don't you? And this is just, think of this picture for the church. It's saying that as we put on and live out the teachings of Jesus Christ, that we actually become beautiful to the world. It's the teaching of Jesus walked out, imitated, lived out in us that makes the church beautiful, makes us stand out. As we obey his word, we live out Jesus quite literally because he is the word incarnate. So when we live out his teachings, it can be no other way than imitating Jesus to the world. And that is what we are called to do as the church. To walk in love is to walk in obedience, which is to imitate Jesus and display him to this world. Let me give you an example of this. Many of you will be familiar with the two sisters, Corrie and Betsy, the Ten Boom sisters. I'm sure many of you are familiar with the, the hiding place and, and the story. They lived in Holland during the onset of the Second World War. And their story is famous because they, uh, they were hiding Jewish people in their father's watch shop. Eventually they were caught and raided by the SS and sent to a number of concentration camps before ending up in the death camp Ravensbrück. Now as Betsy grew weaker, eventually unable to get up for the morning roll calls, it was then she began to speak of her plans for the future, a home for ex-war prisoners to recuperate and later a place where those warped by hate could learn to love. And finally, the day before she died, she pulled her sister Corrie down and whispered her last vision into her ear. And she said this, we must tell them that there is no pit so deep that his love is not deeper still. They will listen to us, Corrie, because we have been here. There is no pit so deep that his love is not deeper still. Now, three days later, Corrie was called into the headquarters. She was given a piece of paper that said released on it. Fifteen years later, she discovered that this was simply a clerical error. She was supposed to be put on the list for execution. One week after she was released, every woman her age at Ravensbrook were killed. Corrie went on to fulfill her sister's vision. She opened a home for victims and a rehabilitation facility for Germans. And finally, she started a worldwide ministry that took her to over 60 countries in 33 years to proclaim what her sister knew, that God's love is deeper still. If I could paraphrase Isaac Watts, this is a love so amazing, so divine, it demands my soul, my life, and my all. And it is this love that we are called to imitate. And we can only do that by living out the teachings of Jesus Christ. Amen. But this also brings with it a word of caution. You see, if we seek to impose a definition, an outworking, or a manifestation of love that comes from the culture... 
regardless of how good our intentions are. And honestly, I know the intentions in this are often honourable. We don't want to exclude people. We don't want to hurt people. We hate to see people upset. But that's not how we make decisions. We have to go with what the Word of God says. So the moment we seek to impose a definition that we do not find in the Bible, we, we move from imitating God to imitating culture, which is the exact thing we're called not to do. And we will never live out the love of God. We have to stay true to the Word of God. And then Paul goes on. He writes, Just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us. To walk in love means we imitate Christ's love. And here Paul holds him up as the extreme example because it says in Hebrews, doesn't it, that Jesus is the exact representation of his nature. He is the ultimate imitation of God, if we could say that. Love will always end up showing sacrifice for others. It is a commitment, it's an action. Sometimes it's accompanied with great intense emotions and passion. Other times it's actually going against what you feel like you should be doing as you lay down your will for the sake of someone else. In 1888, there was a wealthy Virginia native. She left for China to serve as a missionary at the age of 33. Her name was Lottie Moon. Any Southern Baptists in here will probably uh, be familiar with her. She wrote a letter back in 1888 asking for support, and it would mark the beginning of what's now known as the Lottie Moon Christmas Offering, which is now the largest support for foreign missions in the world today. What's interesting I find about this, uh, this great sister in the Lord is that she died of starvation emaciated and penniless on a boat on the way back to America because she was giving all of the rations that she was being given to the starving children in the Chinese famine to whom she was ministering to. Now, we may think this is very radical. If she stayed alive, she could have helped more people and all these sorts of things. She literally gave everything she had in service to Christ, even to her very life, because she understood that her life was not her own anymore. Now, here's the interesting thing. You see, the word for, for love in Hebrew is ahava, and it comes from a word meaning to give. This is a good way to understand love. In our culture, we often think about what we can get. You know, how does love, I want to be able to do this, express my love in this way because it makes me feel good. But love is ultimately about giving, a giving of yourself for another. Lottie Moon gave everything she had in service to Christ. And in so doing, she was giving a wonderful imitation of the Father. Because what does it say in John 3.16, that famous word? For God so loved that he gave. You see how these things are connected? And what does Paul write here in our epistle to the Ephesians? Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us. There's that principle again. And this is the best way to think about and understand love. It's this sort of love that caused the crowd in Thessalonica to claim that Paul and Silas had turned the world upside down. They didn't say that about the gospel. Now, don't misunderstand me. The gospel is obviously foundational. It's the starting point. But what turned the world upside down was people who had been saved by the gospel then living out the teachings of Christ, living in such a way, walking in love, imitating God, bringing that fragrant aroma of Christ with them wherever they went in that culture. This is what made Tertullian's proclaim of the Romans, look how they love one another. This is what turned the world upside down. And I believe this is what the world needs now. There are many problems in the world, many political solutions being advanced. The real issue sits with us here in the church. I believe we need a discipleship revival. And when I say discipleship, let me give you my definition of discipleship. We need to be clear on this. Discipleship is radical imitation of Christ, informed by his word, empowered by his spirit, 
and manifested in obedience and self-sacrificial love. Let's pray for that. Amen. Now let's briefly go through some of these verses. In verses 3 to 7, Paul now moves on from this concept. He lists a number of things, impurity, greed, filthiness, silly talk. Now the point he's making here is that these things are representative of people who are not imitating God. And therefore, he says, they are not fitting for Christians. They destroy our imitation. They destroy our witness. Rather, our mouths should be used for giving praise. Do not be deceived by empty words, he says. There is only one word that we should stand on. That one word which is a sure foundation, and it is the word of God. And we need to be guided by that. So much that Paul says, do not be partakers with them. Do not involve yourself with that. Because if you, if you are a partaker in these things, you will be imitating those things. And once again, when you do that, you move away from imitating Christ and you start imitating culture. And that ruins the witness and the display of Christ that we are supposed to have to the world. Now, obviously, bear in mind, to live like this, we know we have to be grounded in grace. One of the beauties of the, is of the gospel is that we can go to the Lord every time we fail and he'll forgive us every single time when we come to him. So always have that in the back of your mind. That's why Paul writes that we are to be grounded and strengthened in grace. Now let's sum up verses 8 to 14. He goes on and starts talking about walking in darkness and walking in light. All of those things that he mentioned in the previous verses, they represent those who are walking in darkness, not those who are supposed to be children of light and those who are walking in the light. Notice verse 10. Try to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Try to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. I like this because that word try there, it implies effort. Okay, it's, we don't have a passive face. We don't just wait and hope everything's going to work out. It's a, we have a relationship with the Lord. We work on a relationship. It, it sort of implies that we, we are going to make mistakes. We're going to learn. And we understand this with human relationships. Let me give you an example. Many of you, you guys will probably relate to this. If you're in a relationship you're dating for a few months or you know, very early stages and that big birthday or that Valentine's Day comes around a little earlier than you would have really liked. Do I get a gift? Do I not get a gift? Everyone's telling you you need to get a gift. You don't know what to get. So you go out and you pick a, a piece of jewelry. You don't want to spend a lot of money at this stage because you're not sure whether it's going to last. So you, you don't get a big diamond or anything, but you find something and you pick it. And you give it to her and she's gracious. She smiles. She takes it. And let's say it works out. Five years later, you're rumming it around on her shelf looking for something. You go past all the hairsprays and all this sort of stuff. And at the back, you find a little box. Shake the dust off it. And you open it up and you see this hideous piece of jewellery. You think, oh, she'd hate this. Who bought her this? Then you realise, I bought her that. She never worn it. She must have, you, but the thing is, you know her better now. And you know that she would not like that piece of jewellery. It just comes from the relationship building, learning, knowing the likes and dislikes. And it's like this with the Lord in some ways. Paul says, try what is pleasing, try to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. And this is what we're all doing here. And we encourage one another in these works. We help, we expound the word of God. We follow the example of Jesus Christ. And it's a wonderful, wonderful journey. And then let's look at verse 14 to close. Paul says, for this reason... It says, awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine upon you. Now, this is Paul's final warning, and I I remember this is written to Christians here. Awake, sleeper. Do not be lulled into a spiritual slumber. 
by straight Satan's strategies. It's all too easy to have that happen. The famous revivalist preacher George Whitfield, he commented on this verse in a sermon called Satan's Devices. Listen to what he says. He says, Watch carefully over thy heart, O Christian, and whenever thou perceivest thyself to be falling into a spiritual slumber, say to it, as Christ to his disciples, Arise, my soul, why sleepest thou? Awake, awake, put on strength and pray, or otherwise the Philistines will be upon you and lead you where you would not. They had a way with language back then. But this is Paul's message here. Do not stray into the darkness, either in speech or in conduct. Do not seek light or spirituality outside of the revealed word of God. It will only lead you into more darkness. Do not seek wisdom or knowledge in the darkness. That will only corrupt you. Do not seek power or glory. It will lead you to darkness. Rather, seek the one in whom all these things are to be found. For the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6, For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. And that's what it's all about, the face of Christ Jesus. This reminds me of that great hymn writer, Fanny Crosby, that great woman of faith, over 9,000 hymns to her name. She was blind early on in her life. She records an episode where she overheard someone talking about her who said this, It's a shame that God would take away the gift of sight from such a talented woman, to which she immediately returned and replied, If I had had it my way... I would have been born blind, for when I get to heaven, the first face I would ever see would be that of my Saviour. And that is an attitude that we can imitate, I believe. So church, let's awake, let's arise, and let's seek his face together. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, so much for the word. I thank you for Jesus Christ, Lord, who is revealed and glorified through it. I pray now for the rest of this festival, for all the people here that you would just stir up in their hearts this radical imitation of you. Empower us by your spirit to live it out that we would manifest your sacrificial love to this world and we would see the world turned upside down once again for your glory, Jesus. Amen.